Hello and welcome to another episode of the GM Cancer Podcast. I'm Steve Bland and this is the podcast that takes you right inside cancer services right here in Greater Manchester. This episode is all about early diagnosis and we're going to be finding out what is going on right here in Greater Manchester to meet really ambitious NHS targets in terms of catching cancers as early as possible, which we know is really important. So many cancers are curable and treatable if they're caught early. I'll be doing all that in the company of Ali Jones, who's the Director of Cancer Commissioning and Early Diagnosis, and Sarah Taylor, who is a GP and the Early Diagnosis Lead for GM Cancer. So without further ado, let's get cracking. So welcome both to the podcast. Uh, Ali, set the scene for us first. Just how important is early diagnosis and how difficult uh, is it to achieve? It's really, really important. The earlier you diagnose a cancer, then the more successful any subsequent treatment is likely to be. It is a national target, so it is something that cancer alliances have been told we must focus on. I think in the short space of time I've been with the Cancer Alliance, so about three and a half years, I think the focus on early diagnosis has definitely increased, which I think is brilliant. I think it's as it should be. But I think the main thing is the sooner you diagnose a cancer, the sooner you can do something about it and the more likely the outcome is to be positive. Obviously, early diagnosis is important across the board, but are there some cancers where it's where it's more important and also more difficult? There are definitely some where it's more important and where it's more difficult. And there are some where the pace at which things change is different. So lung cancer, catching lung cancer early and doing something about it quickly is really important because the disease can progress quite quickly. There are also some cancers where the symptoms aren't quite so obvious or don't show up in a way that mean patients can do something about it. So we do get quite a number of pancreatic cancers, for example, diagnosed as a result of an emergency admission to hospital because people will show up with quite late stage symptoms. Whereas with things like prostate and bowel cancer and breast cancer, we can do more about identifying those early and some of those symptoms, we can explain those in a way that hopefully the general public understand and, and encourage them to, to present earlier with their GP. So how much uh, of this challenge uh, is about uh, education uh, for not just the public, but you know, people like GPs, you know, the people that are spotting these cancers, how much of the, of the work that we're doing here in GM is about that? A lot. So a lot of the work we're doing is with our communications team to amplify any of the national campaign messages, but also to design things specific for the population in Greater Manchester. So whether that's in a certain format or language or presenting it in certain places differently so that we can encourage people to come forward. But then, yes, there is a huge piece of work to do to support our colleagues in primary care. So not just GPs, but others working in primary care. So pharmacists, dentists and others who are likely to to spot those early signs of cancer. We did quite a successful piece of work with the administrative staff from GP surgeries just a few months ago, because they tend to be the people who know those patients and who know what's normal and who know the family circumstances and arrangements and can probably nudge people 
into having a conversation with a clinician if they spot that something's not quite right or not quite normal. Um, Sarah, um, on top of the introduction that I gave you, you're also a GP, aren't you? And Ali was talking about the the work being done not just for GPs and GP surgeries. How much is that, or how important uh, how important uh, is that in this in this whole kind of scheme of things? I think making things easy for GPs, giving them easily accessible information, uh, is is really really important. You know, we can see, well, we can see we have ten minute appointments. We can see people with we can go to somebody with a mental health problem with a suspected cancer and you need to be able to switch quickly and recognize things quickly and have uh, information accessible easily to help you make a decision when you should refer how you should refer and whether there are any tests you should do before you refer the patient to speed up their referral it's so difficult isn't it for a gp i have a lot of sympathy we did on um <clears throat> on the other podcast that i present uh, you mean the big c we had a a lad on a couple of years ago called Jack who had a very rare uh, type of cancer that um, began or the first symptom was a weeping tear duct and I'm sure if you saw that a hundred times or a GP saw it a hundred times you wouldn't necessarily think it's a really deadly nasty form of rare cancer it's really difficult isn't it to spot these things early it is and I think there's a, there's a really um, one of my GP colleagues has a talks about a policy of three strikes and you're in um, and if you've got a symptom that you can't explain and the patient comes back with it three times you can't explain it well then you should be referring on and asking for some more advice and help and I think that's quite a good policy so yes a, a weeping tear duct on a one-off occasion probably wouldn't raise any alarm bells but if somebody comes back with the same thing three times then you should probably be thinking this is a bit odd and I should be doing something about it. So speaking of patients coming to see you then how do we encourage uh, more patients to go and see their GP with these very 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 early stage symptoms I do obviously I do oh I did a lot of work with uh, Deborah James you know talking about bowel cancer symptoms and, and asking people to go and check their poo you know be aware of your body be aware of what's changing but how do we actually get that message because we see the spikes all the time, don't we? When you know, when Deb, uh, Deb died, we saw a big spike in bowel cancer. Uh, people checking for bowel cancer symptoms. When you know, going back to Jade Goody or or, or a storyline on Coronation Street, we see these big spikes of people uh, checking the internet for uh, to find out what the symptoms are for a certain sort of cancer. But you know, then it kind of goes back to normal levels again. How do we get you know the education and the and the you know, the awareness of these different symptoms out there? I think it's using the all the things it's using different formats different groups um, so making things accessible to different groups it's keeping the message that actually it's really important and that primary care practitioners are really keen to see people with suspected cancer symptoms I appreciate it's really difficult um, to get appointments at times but actually these are the people that we definitely want to be seeing and just reiterating that message and reminding patients of the symptoms that they should be coming forward with um, and then just giving them clear advice when they come in and if you see somebody when who you're sending away give them clear advice as to how quickly you would expect them their symptoms to settle and when you should see them again um, a few years ago I spoke to Beth Purvis who had very similar heard of bowel cancer like um, Deborah and she was told that she had rectal bleeding she was told to go back and see her GP if it got worse and over the subsequent year or so it didn't get worse but it didn't get better and 
if she, but she didn't go back because it hadn't got worse and that was the instruction she was given. And I think it's really important that we give really clear instructions as to what exactly we mean because actually had she been told to go back if it wasn't better within a month, that might have made a massive difference to her diagnosis and prognosis. I have I have so much sympathy for, you know, for you GPs because it's, it's just, you obviously can't be referring everybody into the, into the system. You've got to make a call on some on some people and mm. you know there's you're going to get it wrong sometimes you know that's just how it, yeah. that's how it is yeah and I think that's how, why the sort of what the what's CRUK so which is the safety netting and the bat at the end of the consultation and what you say at the end and what advice you give to a patient about coming back is so important because yes you're not going to get it right at first time each time but actually if you give the right advice at the end and say I would expect mm. and I want to see you if then that really makes quite a big difference because you, you're right. You're never going to look at a patient and go, "This is, you know, I need to refer you and get it right every time." And that, and swinging between that referring everybody and referring nobody, you've got to get a happy balance. But that advice at the end of the consultation, I think, is really key. So that's that's called safety netting, is it? Or is that a technical NHS term, or is that a, a U term? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a sort of. I don't know whether it's used elsewhere, but it's certainly used a lot in primary care. And it's that sort of wrapping up a consultation to make sure that, so you do it with a, an ill child, you'll say, if the child becomes more unwell today, I want to see them again. So it's just it's just covering and get, it's, it's covering the next step so the patient knows what to do and they know when to come back because, you know, you can't get everything right first time and things change. So, you know, a cough that somebody's had for a week, or even for two weeks with a normal chest x-ray doesn't worry me too much if that cough then gets worse over the next four weeks and the patient loses weight or starts coughing up blood or whatever then it does worry me and then I want to see them again so it's just it's I suppose it's partly giving the patient the information that I've got in my brain that I've run through so that they know when to come back. So Ali let's let's sort of look a little bit ahead now what we talked about this this uh, quite ambitious sounding nhs target 75 percent of people to be diagnosed uh, stage one or stage two by 2028 uh, what's happening in, in greater manchester to try and meet that target or exceed it exceed it yeah i was asked that question in an interview um so <laughs> where would we get to if it was above 85 percent so in greater manchester we've got um an early diagnosis steering group and you can talk about having a steering group and think oh great that's wonderful so a group of people get together once a month or whatever and talk about it but I think the steering group that that we've got in that that Sarah chairs because we've got representation on that group from across the board in Greater Manchester so we've got primary care in there and not just GPs we've got primary care managers in there as well as clinicians We've got a number of representatives from voluntary sector organisations and community groups. So, yes, we've got CRUK and Macmillan at the table, but we've got some of those local to GM groups as well so that we can work with them to communicate some of these messages out there. I think the changes that are happening in the NHS at the moment with the introduction of the integrated care system and the the focus that's being placed on the localities in Greater Manchester. So we've got 10 areas in Greater Manchester and we've got people from each of those 10 areas involved in this. 
So they work with us on deciding what needs to happen and how best to do it. And then they take that back out into the areas that they work in and communicate that with the people who are far closer to the ground and closer to the people that need to to make these changes than Sarah and I are sitting in a, a GM team. So I think a lot of this is about relationships and involving lots of people in it and not just telling people what to do but actually involving them in deciding what the best thing is to do um and getting ideas from the people who know how to tackle this because we can have all the ideas in the world but actually some realism from people who do this day in day out i mean we've done quite a lot of work as we've already talked about on gp education and one of the early requests that sarah and i got early on in the COVID pandemic was we need some GP education that's quite bite-sized and easy to access and easy to follow and understand, something you can sit and look at for 10, 15 minutes while you're having a cup of coffee. Not all hour-long webinars that take people who are already crazily busy away from clinical time, something that people can access and use much more easily. So that's why we've got the, the webinars and the short videos and the infographics that we've developed, just trying to find different ways to engage people and use people's different learning styles, I suppose, and engaging them in that whole process. That's really interesting, actually, 10 different areas of, of GM. I imagine <clears throat> there's obviously a lot of diversity in all different kinds of ways in those 10 areas. There must be different challenges in in the areas that we're talking about, different challenges are right across those 10 areas. There are, and actually within those 10 areas as well. So there's variation yeah. when you look at the, the figures across the 10. So yes, you've got one who seems to do better than the other nine, and you will always get that variation across those 10 areas. But there are different populations within them as well. So there are areas of deprivation in all 10. There are variations in the ethnicity of the populations in those 10 so we have to think about different ways of communicating not always relying on the written word as well so thinking of different media forums that we can use to to get the messages across and I think that's where working with the people who know those areas is essential because they know how to communicate with the people in those areas far better than we do so I worked in Thameside and Glossop for 15 years and you get to know the intricacies of the populations that you're working with. You get to know the the groups to go to. You get to know the people to go to, to, to try and share important messages. And you can't do that from a greater Manchester level. You need that involvement of the localities. Sarah, Ali was uh, just talking about <clears throat> uh, bite-sized information for GPs. What What sort of thing are we talking about when... You know, what sort of information are you giving GPs? What sort of education are you finding that you have to give? I think it's it's that suggestion to think cancer when you've got a symptom that you can't explain. So as we talked about cough or bowel symptoms, a lot of patients with cough will have a chest infection or something like that. But it's that thought that if when should you start to think further than an infection with a patient with a cough mm. when should you start to think the patient with altered bowel habit a little bit further than you know a young patient have they got irritable bowel syndrome well have they not so it's it's trying to give you those extra questions that you should ask extra signs you should think about um getting the information from specialists who see these things every day 
to ask a few extra key questions that might make the difference for a GP to make the difference between deciding to refer and not to refer. I think I was saying to you a few minutes ago when I spoke to Deborah James just before the Greater Manchester Cancer Conference a few years ago, she was telling me that she presented with with bleeding and she said if somebody had asked her, is it more or less than a teaspoonful? She'd have said it's way more than a teaspoonful at which point you start to become a little bit more alarmed about it. But if you don't ask, patients don't volunteer. So it's trying to put those extra questions into a very quickly accessible format for GPs so that they can make that decision. It's the same as family history. You know, the patient who, I would say the patient just come back, who comes in to see you with diarrhoea for four weeks. If they're 40 and they've just come back from traveling around India for six months, I'm not too worried if they're 40 and they've got a brother and a father and an uncle who've all had bowel cancer. I am worried. But if I don't ask about that, I won't know. And it's just thinking about those extra questions that it's quite quick to ask, tests that it might be quite quick to do that will help you make that decision. Uh, Just talking about people like Deb, you you know, the Instagram community now, there's a massive community of people sharing their stories of of all different types of cancer, all different experiences, different stages, all different, you know, pathways with surgery and what have you. How much of an impact do you think uh, that has had on 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 sort of general uh, general education about symptoms and things to look out for? I think it's really beneficial. I think you know, there's as you, you said, the, you know, the effect that we had on bowel cancer presentations when Deborah died. Um, we you know when. Bill Turnbull died recently. We were asked to do that. I know that there was some uh, quite a lot of media coverage on symptoms of prostate cancer. I think that the more stories there are out there, whether they're lines on soap operas, whether they're celebrities disclosing that they've had um, symptoms, it makes a difference because it just raises people's awareness. And I think particularly of slightly abnormal things, because, you know, the whole bowel cancer never too young campaign is really important because there's no the guidelines sort of say, if you're above 50, well, there's lots of people who aren't. And I think it's so I think if just seeing those people out there and knowing it can happen does make people come forward. And it's really important. That's it, isn't it, Ali, just getting that uh, message out that you know, this is indiscriminate. This can happen to anybody at any time. And uh, and there might be, you know, people that are more um, more susceptible because of their age or their, their body shape or whatever it might be. But, you know, these cancers can happen to anybody. They can. And I think that is where social media has a huge part to play, whether that's in the public facing arena or actually in some of our primary care education as well anything that's accessible via social media so the short clips of stuff that we're producing trying to get that out there so that a GP can see something on Twitter or on Instagram and can access those videos and those those graphics but I think using social media and using some of the the well-known faces helps because you can also if I say get to people that probably sounds wrong but if kids, teenagers, people my age with elderly parents, you know, if you sort of see something and think, crikey, that sounds like my mum or, oh, hang on a minute, my husband was a bit like, you know, it's getting into the family members mm. as well, isn't it? Not just directly to to the people affected. Uh, uh, kids is an important area, yeah. isn't it, though, as well? Because if, you know, teaching a young woman about the, you know, what to look out for in terms of breast cancer, you know, well before an age that they might actually uh, get it is is I imagine really important as well. 
Yeah, and I think that's where linking in with schools and with local authorities mm. through the education route and trying to get some of these messages out through that route rather than always doing it through NHS channels is a really important way of looking at it. I mean, we've all got children that, you know, will be exposed to stuff whilst they're at school and at college and at uni and wherever they are. And they bring it home with them, don't they? I mean, mine absorb it just listening to me talking work. They <laughs> they pick up yeah. things. They're like little sponges. So using that awareness and that understanding and then the influence that they can have over family members is could be quite massive, couldn't it? Could be quite powerful. Yeah, just talking, isn't it, Sarah? It's, you know, going back, I know my uh, my mum's mum died from breast cancer. And I think the family didn't even know she had it until about a week before she died. They just didn't talk about this going back to the 60s and 70s. And I think it's you know, just talking about these things, you know. Has, yeah, well, it's the stats, isn't impact. it? The CIUK stats are one in two people are going to get cancer in their lifetime. So you need to be watching out for it, aware of the symptoms. And I think the other thing that's really important is to um, change that public perception that actually cancer means that people are automatically going to have treatments that are going to mean they're going to be very unwell and lose their hair and that and that people inevitably die from cancer because actually with all cancers now that's not the whole picture and I think it's really important to, to get that message out to people that actually you know that the earlier you treated the better and that a lot of the treatments are now very successful uh, and that's some, I think that's a really important message to get out as well because otherwise people think there's no some people are still of the opinion that there's no point in going to see somebody because if you've got lung cancer that's it and it's not and that's not that's not the case and there are really good treatments now and they're developing all the time as you can see from all you know various people wonderful thank you so much both that was that was fantastic thank you very much for joining me so as always on this podcast, we try and, and hear from as many patients as possible. And we're going to do that right now. I've got, I've got Caroline Mattinson with me. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I won't, I won't explain your story. I'll let you do that. Do you want to take us back and explain your first yeah. brush with, with a GP, your <laughs> symptoms, everything that happened? Uh, take us back. Yeah. It was real, well. It was back in two thousand and fourteen, and I was happily working away for the NHS Bowel Cancer Screening Program, which is quite uh, random. Um, and I experienced some bleeding in about July. I was going on holiday and thought it's nothing. It's fine. At that point, I was under screening age. I was healthy. No family history. No reason to believe it was anything but bleeding and piles, possibly. So I went to my GP and. Um, he did exactly the same. They examined me and said, yeah, can't see anything. It's probably internal piles. Have this cream. Come back in two weeks. We'll see how you go on. Because, again, I had no other symptoms. But because of my job, I said, can you refer me for colonoscopy? And he said, oh, it's a bit extreme. You know, you just, just piles, don't worry. So, um, anyway, I said, just do it because my job is this and it's not normal. It's really not normal for me. Uh, so he did and like I say I was going on a holiday and I kind of thought it will go away I don't want a colonoscopy really but I um, eventually went for a colonoscopy but not until 
um it's about end of october beginning of november i think i was i was um getting married for the first time i was having an engagement party and just life took over and i did leave it i must admit from about july uh, august time not till november um and even as i was lying on the bed ready for ready with my paper knickers on for my colonoscopy um they were going right we've got your snares ready we're gonna get your um your piles and you'll be sorted and I looked at the screen and I could see a, a small lesion myself and the the the, um, the atmosphere in the room disappeared really. It sort of all changed and suddenly everything changed from that, that moment. So from going to have some uh, piles removed to uh, being diagnosed with a lower rectal cancer in uh, uh, November, 1st of November uh, 2014. So let's just go back a little bit. We talked earlier on this yeah. on this podcast episode about uh, um, safety netting, the challenge that GPs have in terms of mm, yeah. um, you know spotting cancers as early as possible and how difficult sometimes yeah. that can be. Without yeah. wanting to kind of point any fingers or, or 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 you know look for something that could have been done differently, was there a plan set up yeah. or a or a process kind of set up uh, after that first initial? GP appointment to maybe kind of monitor were you told to you know if things don't change you make sure you come back what was the what was the plan kind of put in place going forward after that um, first appointment yeah no not really ironically going further back about 18 months before I'd gone to the GP with um, low blood pressure I was feeling a bit lightheaded and after some blood tests they found out I was anemic and that was say about 18 months before that and I was really shocked that at that stage they immediately referred me for a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy uh, because this, it wasn't normal. It was suddenly, again, no other symptoms, no other lifestyle changes, and it was an instant referral to, to that process on that occasion. So that was about 18 months before I'd been to the GP with this bleeding. Uh, so, yeah, he, was, he said, yes, he'd refer me, um, and to come back, he said, do you want the cream? I said, no, I don't even want cream. And at that point, it was, if things if things go worse, then do come back, but see what the, what the, what the colonoscopy says. So really, you know, from that initial GP appointment, the plan was for me to go back if things, you know, if I got any other symptoms, if anything else, if the bleeding got worse, it, that was the plan. Now, you're, you're quite an unusual kind of patient, in a sense, yeah. in a sense that you would yeah. have had a lot more knowledge than a lot of people would have had about the symptoms of bowel cancer. You knew that you yeah. wanted to be referred. A lot yeah. of people wouldn't have had that that knowledge and that um, that insight into what yeah. it could possibly be. So yeah, this goes back to the education thing we've talked about uh, on this episode, lots more episodes where people need to know what they're looking for, don't they? Yeah, I think that's it. I think when you go to the GP, I was going with bleeding. That's all it was. There was, like I said, there was no, if I'd have looked into it, if I'd have played Dr. Google, it was still wouldn't have, have shown anything because, again, I had no family history. I was healthy. I didn't eat. I didn't, all the, the things that I did in my job when I was talking to people, raising awareness, um, I didn't do those things. So I thought, yeah, it, 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 I myself thought it was, but I don't know something is just made me think that I needed that further investigation because it wasn't normal, um, the bleeding, and it wasn't going away. It was getting worse, and it was it was it was over the like they say two or three weeks. It it was going on for, 
So, yeah, so I'd listen to those signs and symptoms that I say to people, if something's not right and it goes on for two or three weeks, then, you know, speak to your GP about it because it just needs checking over. But isn't that really interesting that, like, you you know, you knew that and you say that to other people, but when it happened to you, yeah. you get in that mindset yeah. of, it. oh, it can't possibly be cancer. Yeah. It's one of those things yeah. that happens to other people. It can't possibly be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, like I said, because I'd had the colonoscopy about 18 months before and everything was fine. I know it's a slow growing cancer, bowel cancer, but I thought, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's just, it is just piles. I thought, even as they were referring me and as I was seeing the consultants and, like I say, turning up for the colonoscopy, I still at that point, until I looked up at the screen and I could see something myself, like I say, from the screen, you know, on the screen and, you know, like I said, just the comments on the professionals I was working that were there, you know, dealing with me. I, I just knew, and they said, you know, have you got anybody with you? And I knew then, you know, they, you know what, I knew what message they were going to give me. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting about you kind of working in this in this area professionally is that you probably have a decent insight into just how early, uh, just how important, sorry, that early diagnosis is or or, or was. I mean, I mean, we'd never you know we can never know like how the cancer would have progressed or 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 if you maybe would have caught it you know at some later time that's the point of this podcast episode to focus really on how important early diagnosis is yeah i mean at the time i was too young for screening because it was i was 49 and it's only just coming down to 50 now but it just shows that even with the screening you know please, you know take part in the screening but then if there's something else that happens that just makes you think that this isn't right. Don't wait for the screening, you know, make sure you go and speak to the GP. And I'm so glad I did. And I'm so glad I kind of was strong enough to say, refer me, even though the, the GP didn't thought it wasn't necessary. Um, he thought, no, he said, come back you know, after two weeks and then we'll refer you. But I, I said, no, you know, start, I know how long sometimes these things can take. And I just, I just knew it needed checking out. Um, and like I say, I, I didn't fit the bill of, for you know all the things like I say I was saying of my my age my no history or anything and it was just and I, I remember because it was really funny as well I worked with one of the nurses who then with was with me with my journey one of the colorectal nurses I'd already worked with her professionally at a health event so when she saw me she was shocked and um, you know I said to another like I said the, the messages that we've been given all this time it's now I'm I'm experiencing it so it was um a strange scenario the thing you talked then about about knowing your body you know that's a really important thing isn't it in terms yeah. of you know moving away from maybe what the uh, the healthcare professionals can be doing in terms of, of early diagnosis and looking at what the patients can be doing uh, yeah. knowing your body knowing knowing the changes uh, knowing yeah. what's you know what to look for not just for bowel cancer different kind of cancers yeah that's really important isn't it Absolutely, yeah, because I just knew something wasn't right. I mean, occasionally, maybe when you go to the toilet, you'd, you'd wipe and you'd see blood and you'd know kind of why. And it'd only be occasionally, or but this time it was fresh blood. It was more, you know, it was more often and it wasn't going away. It wasn't getting better. It wasn't stopping. And I, I, and I just thought, yeah, this, this needs checking out. This just needs looking at just to, you know, just to see what it was. Um, and like I say, it was, I was really lucky that it was diagnosed so, um, early. 
Um, there was a choice of two operations I could have had, um, and one of them would have been just under colonoscopy. They could have just removed it under colonoscopy, and that would have been kind of the end of my journey. I only had to have radiotherapy. I didn't need chemotherapy because it hadn't spread. So, you know, I feel like I was really, really lucky that I got it that early. And apart from a few dodgy bowel habits, now I'm back to normal. It's I'm five years, well, five years down the line, and yeah, everything's. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm good. <laughs> That's fantastic news because, you know, we know, don't we? So many, uh, so many experiences because they're not caught early, particularly with things like bowel cancer. So many experiences don't go that way, and and it's um, yeah, just wonderful that yours, yeah. yours yeah. has ended up with a happy ending. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Caroline, and and I wish you all the best for the future. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Caroline, to Ali and to Sarah for joining me on this episode of the GM Cancer Podcast. And thank you to you for listening as well. Please tune in next time. And in the meantime, if you want to check out all the work of GM Cancer, go on and find them on Twitter uh, at GM underscore cancer. Or you can find them now on Instagram at Greater Manchester Cancer. I'll see you next time.